Chapter 7 of Journeys to Baghdad. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gordon S. Jones, Draper, Utah. Journeys to Baghdad by Charles S. Brooks. The Chilly Presence of Hard-Headed Persons. It is a rash business scuttling your own ship. Now, as I am in a way a practical person, which is, I take it, a diminutive state of hard-headedness, any detraction against hard-headedness must appear as leveled against myself. Gimlet in hand, deep down amidships, it would look as if I were squatted and set on my own destruction. But by hard-headed persons, I mean those beyond the ordinary, those so far gone that a pinprick through the skull would yield not so much as a drop of ooze, persons whose brain convolutions did they appear in fright at the aperture on the insertion of the pin, like a head at a window when there is a fire on the street, would betray themselves as but a kind of cordage. Such hard-headedness, you will admit, is of a tougher substance than that which may beset any of us on an occasion at the price of meat or on the recurrent obligations of the too constant moon. I am reasonably free from colds. I do not fret myself into a congestion if a breath comes at me from an open window, or if a swirl of wind puts its cold fingers down my neck, do I lift my collar. Yet the presence of a thoroughly hard-headed person provokes a sneeze. There is a chilly vapor off him, a swampish miasma that puts me in a snuffling state beyond poultice and mustard footpaths. No matter how I huddle to the fire, my thoughts will congeal and my purpose cramp and stiffen. My conceit, too, will be but a shriveled bladder. Several years ago, I knew a man of extreme hard-headedness. As I recall, I was afflicted at the time, indeed the malady coexisted with his acquaintance, with a sorry catarrh of the nasal passages. I can remember still the clearings and snufflings that obtruded in my conversation. For two winters, my complaint was beyond the cunning of the doctors. Despite local applications and such pills as they thought fit to administer, still did the snuffling continue. Then, on a sudden, my friend left town, consequent to which, and to the amazement of the profession, the springs of my disease dried up. As this happened at the beginning of the warm days of summer, I am loath to lay my cure entirely to his withdrawal. Yet there was a nice jointry of time. My acquaintance thereafter dropped to an infrequent statistical letter against which I have in time proofed myself. But the Qatar has ceased, except when some faint thought echoes from the past, at which again, as in the older days, I am forced to blow a passage in the channel for verbal navigation. This man's interest in life was oil. It oozed from the vintages of his talk. If he looked on the map of this fair world, with its mountains like caterpillars dozing on the page, for so do maps present themselves, to my fancy, he would see merely the blueprint and huge specification of oil production and consumption. The dotted cities would suggest no more than agencies in its distribution, and they would be pegged in many colors, as is the custom of our business efficiency, by way of base symbolism of their rank and pretense. The wide oceans themselves would be merely courses for his tank ships to bustle on and leave a greasy trail. 
Really, uh, contrary to my own experience in Sudden Cure, one might think that such an oleaginous stream of talk, if directed in atomizer fashion against the nostrils of the listener, would serve as a healing emulsion for the complaint I then suffered with. Be these things as they may, what I can actually vouch for is that when this fellow had set himself and opened a volley of facts on me, I was shamed to silence. There was a spaciousness, a planetary sweep, and glittering breadth that shriveled me. The commodity which I dispensed was but used around the corner, with a key turned upon it at the shadowy end of day, against its intrusion on the night. But his oil, all day long and all night too, was swishing in its tanks on the course to Zanzibar, and all the fretted activity of the earth was tributary to his purpose. How like an untrimmed, smoky night candle did my ambition burn! If I chanced to think in thousands, it was a strain upon me. My cerebrum must have throbbed itself to pieces upon the addition of another cipher. But he marshaled his legions and led them up and down until it dazed me. I was no better than some cobbler with a fiddle, crooked and intent to the twanging of his E-string, while the great Napoleon thundered by. The secret channels of the earth, and the fullness thereof, made a joyful gurgle in his thoughts, and if he ever wandered in the country, and ever saw a primrose on the river's brim, which I consider unlikely, his attention being engaged at the moment on figuring the cost of oil barrels, with special consideration for the price of bungs, if this man ever did see a primrose, would it have been a yellow primrose to him and nothing more? Bless your dear eyes, it would have been a compound of by-products, paraffin, wax candles, cup grease, lamp blacks, beeswax, and peppermint drops, not to mention its proper distillation into such rare odors as might be sold at so much a bottle to jobbers and a set price at retail with best legal talent to avoid the Sherman Act. This man has lived, my spleen rises at the thought, in many of the capitals of Europe. For six months at a time he has walked around one end of the Louvre on his way home at night without once putting his head inside. Indeed, it is probable he hasn't noticed the building, or if he has, thinks it is an arsenal. Now in all humility, and unbuttoned, as it were, for a spanking by whomsoever shall wish to give it, I must confess that I myself have no great love for the Louvre, regarding it somewhat as an endurance test for tired tourists, a kind of blow in the nozzle and watch the dial mount up contrivance, as at a county fair. And so I am not sure but that the band playing in the gardens is a better amusement for a bright afternoon, and that a nursemaid in uniform with her children, bare-legged tots with fingers in the sand, and that such sight is more worthy of respect than a dead duchess painted on the wall. It is but a ritualistic obeisance I have paid the gods inside. My finer reverence has been for benches in the sun and the vagabondage of a bus top. If ever my friend gets to heaven, it will be but another point for exportation. How closely he will listen for any squeaking of the pearly gates with a nostrum ready for their dry complaint. When he is once through and safe, the other pilgrims still coming up the hill, for heaven, I'm sure, will be set on some windswept ridge with purple distance in the valleys, how he will put his ear against the hinge for nice diagnosis as to the weight of the oil that will give best result. How he will wink upon the gateman that he write his order large. Reader, I have sent you off upon a wrong direction. I have twisted the wooden finger at the crossroads. 
The man of oil does not exist. He is a piece of fiction with which to point a moral. Pig iron or cotton cloth would have served as well, anything, in fact, whereon, by too close squinting, one may blunt his sight. We have all observed a growing tendency in many persons to put, as it were, electric lights in all the corners and attics of their brains, until it is too much a rarity to find anyone who will admit a twilight in his whole establishment. This is carrying mental housekeeping too far. I will confess that I prefer a light at the foot of the back stairs, where the steps are narrow at the turn, for Annie is precious to us. I will confess also that it is well to have a switch in the kitchen to throw light in the basement, on the chance that the wood box may get empty before the evening has spent itself. There is comfort, too, in not being forced to go darkling to bed, like child Roland to the tower, but to put out the light from the floor above. But we are carrying this business too far in mental concerns. Here is properly a place for a rare twilight. It is not well that a man should always flare himself like a lighted ballroom. Much of our best mental stuff, if you exclude the harsher grindings of our business hours, fades in too coarse a light. Tis a brocade that for best preservation must not be hung always in the sun. There must be regions in you unguessed at, cornered and shadowy places, recesses to be shown at peep of finger width, yielding only to the knock of fancy, dim sequesterings tucked obscurely from the noises of the world, where one must be taken by the hand and led, dusky closets beyond the common use. It is in such places, your finger on your lips and your feet a tiptoe on the stairs, that you will hide away from baser uses the stowage of moonlight stuff and such other gaseous and delightful foolery as may lie in your inheritance. End of chapter 7